keep your Bibles, go with me to Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1. Just uh, before we get started, I just have to say um, I'm thankful for the gospel witness, for evidence of God's working, moving, changing, rescuing hand uh, in the life of Alyssa Coleman. Um, tears fell from my eyes as I listened to her testimony for the first time, at least in that fashion. I'm thankful for the gospel work in this church, not just from Russ and I, um, but from you all as well. Um, From those who teach in our children's ministry and to her mom and dad, um, just thankful for for God's work in in those ways. I want to pray as we begin in Jonah this morning. Father God, Thank you so much for your kindness to rescue a needy and broken people. And to do it in such an incredibly marvelous, magnificent, beautiful, glorious way. Through the conquering of death, through the earning of righteousness. And ultimately, the death of your son, Jesus. And then through his incredible resurrection. Father, I pray that that we would see much of that beautiful picture right here in the book of Jonah. For Jesus said, these scriptures testify concerning me. For it's in his name we pray, amen, amen. Today we're going to be looking at Jonah chapter 1, 4 through the end of chapter 1. And then actually next week I'm going to preach a part 2 to Jonah chapter 1 verses 4 through 16. Uh, Nathan, there is a low rumble that I can hear. Um, I don't know if anybody else can or not, but it's like on the verge, and it's making me timid. (laughs) And I don't want to be timid when I'm preaching. Okay, thanks, Nathan. That sounds better. Jonah chapter 1, 4 through the end, and we'll do a part 2 next week. At the very heart of Christianity, we have these words. Romans 5.8 says this, But God shows His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There are lots of things that we can put and name and place at the center of Christianity, but certainly this is one of the necessary components at the core and the heart of Christianity. The inner working, we see here, the inner working and the motivation ultimately of a Christian's life. It's not just law keeping, it's the love of God. Not the way the love of God, the way our world wants to define the love of God. We define the love of God as that just kind of lets everybody do whatever they want. But this kind of love is a little bit different, as you will see, particularly here in the book of Jonah. But he says that God, listen to this, God demonstrated. See that? He, he showed us a picture. He put on display his love for us in the death of his son Jesus. Romans 5 8 tells us. As we think about this today, that, you know, roughly 2,000 years ago, God was demonstrating his love for us through the death of his son Jesus. Every Christian, I would define that as those who get up every morning and cling to Jesus' righteousness and follow, strive to follow all that He has said. This Christian, this person has many struggles, 
but at the very core of our existence, even beyond these Christians, but at the core of our existence, we want, as I was reminded by Tim Keller recently, that we want to feel loved by God. We want to be loved by something outside of ourselves. We want to be looked at favorably by God. And so we live with this tension in us. We live with this this kind of wrestling inside where we want to feel loved by God. And particularly if you're a follower of Jesus, you know you are loved by God, and yet we don't often feel that we are loved by God or remember that we are loved by God. And so we try to find that love in another God. We might say it a little more nicely. We try to find that love in another way. But that other way is just simply another God that we have fashioned for ourselves. Now what's the result, right? So that's this tension. I want to be loved by God. I know I'm loved by God, but I don't feel loved by God. And so I go do all of these things that are not right. We live with this tension. The result is that you and I live Without multiple things, let me list for you just a few. We live without steady, God-informed, fueled joy. We rock back and forth, in and out of depression, in and out of joylessness. Why? Because our, our God that we're searching after can't do that. Like He can't sustain it. Or another result is that we lack or we live without a motivation for righteousness or certainly without the right motivation for righteousness or we live without the stamina to do hard things to do the right things and instead again we live with things such as melancholy discouragement and pursuit even of unrighteousness We've been talking about this idea of this gap between our formal theology and our functional theology. So what we say we believe, and then the, really the way we live. And the way we live is, is our functional theology. It's really the theology by which we operate. And here's the gap. You believe that Jesus died and rose again but you regularly and consistently don't feel that God loves you. Like You know it in your head, but you don't know it in your heart. There's a gap. You say this question, so Pastor Matt, you don't even know me, or you don't know me well enough. I know that God loves me, and I live that every day. I know He loves me. I would say, I I don't think either we're not understanding each other or you don't understand this difference between like what it really looks like, rather, to love, to know that you're loved by God and to live as though you're loved by God. So how do you know, Pastor Matt? I'm just, we're just making an observation of fruit here. Obviously, only God ultimately knows. Don't want to deny that reality. But here's how I would say I think we know as we look at fruit. Because to truly know the love of God, listen, all the temptation of sin would melt away. Like to, to know the love of God in perf- like perfectly would mean that the temptation of sin would be gone. All the unbelief in your heart that is so rampant right now would break way into Godward faith. Another reason why we know is that your desire to read and know His Word on a very practical level would be unquenchable. So because these things are not true of any of us in this room, there's a gap between knowing God loves me and living as though I know God loves me. Now, here's the the interesting thing. Since you say you believe in the cross... I think most of us in this room would say that. It's easy to assume that the reason you don't feel loved by God is found elsewhere. 
Maybe it's because I don't give him enough credit for the blessings in my life, right? Count your blessings, name them one by one. Anybody know that song? Count your blessings, see what God has done, right? So maybe you haven't counted enough of his blessings. Or maybe it's because I don't serve enough. Maybe I, I'm not doing enough for God. Or maybe it's because I need a better attitude. I just need to think better. You know, like Peter Pan, have happier thoughts. Then I would know that I'm loved by God. But the reality is, is that the problem, the solution, if you will, rather, to the problem is not found somewhere else. The problem with the gap between believing in the cross and the resurrection and knowing it as a demonstration of God's love is not solved anywhere else but at the cross. As I read this week, someone said, you experience the love of God by grasping what Christ has accomplished at the cross and by discovering why this is good news for you and for me. Loved by God, that motivates from the very core what we do, why we do, and yet we struggle with knowing that, and yet Romans and Paul says that we know it by looking at the demonstration at the cross. He said, as I said here before, we're going to look at Jonah this morning. He said, what does that have to do with Easter? Jonah, particularly this portion of Jonah, has everything to do with Easter. The first thing I want you to see as we work through this passage in Jonah is this, is that we need to understand the uncomfortable grace of God's anger. We need to understand the uncomfortable grace of God's anger. I know, great point to start off with on an Easter sermon, right? The anger of God. Listen, if we're going to understand the love of God in order to see this demonstration of it, that we might close this gap. We need to understand the uncomfortable grace of God's anger. As I was reminded by one author this week, that is two words that we don't typically see together. Grace and anger. God's grace and God's anger. In our minds, those two things tend to be mutually exclusive. You either have grace or you have anger. But read with me in Jonah chapter 1, verse 4. We'll read, talk, read, talk, read, talk as we move forward this morning. Verse 4, and only verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. I want to remind us here, I'm going to stop right there. I want to remind us here that Jonah is running in rebellion, right? God told him to go to Nineveh. He says, I don't want to go. I'm not going to go. So what's he do? He heads the opposite direction. The ship was already waiting for him. He goes the opposite direction and says, no, I'm not going to go. You see, the gap between his formal theology and his functional theology is huge. He preaches, if you look at his history, up to this point, he's been preaching that God is trustworthy. But then Jonah's actions say that God isn't. He preaches that God loves him and he believes that God loves him, but then he runs as though God hates him. But look in the text. What's it begin with in verse 4? It says, but. But God is about to do something. The but indicates Jonah's been running, but God. So God's going to do something about Jonah running. God, by his providential hand, what's he do? He sends a storm. He sends a great big storm. In fact, the text says that God hurled the wind. That God is directly, what you need to see here is that God is directly and dramatically intervening here. Here's what you need to grasp. God is the one sending the storm. Hebrews 1.3 says that God sustains all things by the 
powerful word, by his powerful word. You can go look that up later. Mark 4.41 says that the wind and the waves obey him. Right? So the scriptures give testimony, even here in Jonah, by example and a narrative that God controls the wind, that he sustains the wind, that the wind starts and stops where God tells it to. So listen, here's what you need to see, is that God is not simply allowing this storm to happen. God made this storm happen. Now, I don't know if your theology is big enough to handle that kind of statement. I don't have time to, to work on how, how, how do we think about that. But the fact is this. The text says God hurled the storm. It didn't say God allowed the storm. It says he hurled the storm. So the fact is the text says it, so we have to deal with it, whether we like it or not. So he didn't just allow it, God sent it. In God's providence, in God's sovereignty, underneath his power and his control, he hurls the storm on Jonah and the sailors. God is angry. Listen, God is saying, Jonah, you want to run from me? You want to run from me, almighty God? You think you can run from my sovereign plan? Watch me. Just watch me. hurls the storm upon Jonah and the sailors. This anger, though, let's think about this for a second. This anger, though, is not the kind of anger that you and I think of. As I was listening to Paul Tripp this past week, he gave an example about that uncle at the family reunions that's always got this anger problem and gets mad. I was thinking of another example that the kind of anger that a parent displays out of sin to their child that often makes those around them feel uncomfortable. You know what I'm talking about. The parent that's had enough and so they lash out in anger at their child and there's people around and you're all kind of like awkward, right? And you just want to kind of get away and go the opposite direction. I'm going to give them some space and hopefully he or she won't turn on me, you know? A sort of vengeful anger, right? A sort of vengeful, if you're not a parent, you've seen parents do this. That's a different kind of anger. It's not the anger that God is doing here. You see, in God's anger, there is hope. In your anger, there's hopelessness most often. In God's anger, there is hope. Indeed, God's anger is the hope of the universe. And again, you're going, whoa, the grace of God is the hope. of Yes, I'm with you. But also the anger of God is the hope of the universe. You see, without God's anger, hear me, without God's anger, there would be no cross. You and I don't want to live in a world where there is not an angry God. Listen, I know our whole culture and there are churches built on this idea that God is just nothing but love. Listen, God is angry here. And you and I don't want to live in a world without an angry God. Listen, if there was no angry God, then there would be no justice. If there was not an angry God, then there would be then no mercy. As someone else said, it would be a world that would be completely uninhabitable. God's anger here, though, is not the anger of vengeance or condemnation. However, listen to me very clearly, it would have been completely right for God to judge all of them with his anger and wipe them all out. That would have been completely right for God to do that. They were sinners rebelling against God, both Jonah and the crew. He could have wiped them out in judgment. Instead, instead, right here in the midst of the storm, don't miss this. God's grace is on display. See, how? 
How is God's grace on display? Listen, God is bringing the forces of nature. Think about the picture. He's bringing the forces of nature. He is harnessing the wind, the rain, the waves to bear. He's bringing them all to bear on the situation. Now hear me very clearly right here. Not to harm Jonah ultimately, but to turn him and lead him to redemption. Oh, don't miss this. God's uncomfortable grace is at work for His glory and Jonah's good right in the midst of the storm via the storm. God's saying, you'll run from me. I'll show you. And He sends this storm to rescue Jonah. You see, what we see is that God's holy anger and His holy grace come together for our good. For many of us, we don't feel loved by God. We don't believe we can trust God because our understanding oftentimes of God's grace stops just before all the non-painful things. Well, God is gracious if He if He keeps me from having to deal with this, right? We talk about God as being gracious as he spared me, right? Or if you're super spiritual, you'll say, well, God's grace is giving me the strength to get through the hard thing. But none of us look at the hard thing as actual grace from God to us to rescue us. We fail to see that the storm itself is the grace of God. Indeed, it is God's uncomfortable grace. But still grace that if we're to understand and to see the love of God demonstrated on the cross, that we must become accustomed to. It is His uncomfortable grace, the grace of anger that is meant to aid in our rescue. See, God's anger and God's grace come together to work for our good. Now, here's what I don't want you to miss. Don't miss the cross right here. Right here at the cross, you see the meeting of God's holy grace and God's holy anger. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever considered what drove Jesus to the cross? Two things. The anger of God with sin. That drove Jesus to the cross. Two. The grace of God towards sinners. You see the same thing here in Jonah. You see the anger of God... You don't rebel against me. That's sinful and wrong and hurtful and robs me of the glory that's due to me. But I love you, Jonah. And I'm going to rescue you. God was angry at Jonah's rebellion. He sends the storm. God's grace towards Jonah. He uses the storm to turn him to repentance. You see, the story, listen, don't miss it. The story of Jonah preaches the cross to us. Let's read on. Verse 5 through 7. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. 
Now for the record, next week we're going to spend more time like thinking about particularly the mariners and, and our interaction with the mariners and Jonah's interaction with the mariners. And we're going to think about that more next week. But for now, God's uncomfortable grace will expose your secret sins, giving way to hope. For now, I want you to think about this. God's uncomfortable grace will expose your sins, giving way to hope. Let's keep working through here. You know, one fatal assumption I think we make, and I, I, know, I know this is going to kind of rub us a little on the hard side. Here's one fatal assumption we make, is that we can call on God in a storm. That I can kind of do what I want to do and do whatever, and then when I do get into a storm, that I can just, okay, when, the, when I get there, you know, God, I can always call on God. I think that's an unfortunate assumption that we make, and sometimes a fatal one. I want you to notice something in the story. Even after the captain rebukes Jonah, Right? He still doesn't pray. Even after the captain rebukes Jonah. Oh wait, why are you sleeping? What happens? Then they say, well now let us go cast lots. Right there was the opportunity. Why are you sleeping? And Jonah couldn't speak. He couldn't. He wouldn't. You say, well, okay, wait, wait, listen, secret sins against God. That's what was going on in Jonah. He had the secret sin against God. He was rebelling against God. He didn't want what God wanted. He didn't trust God. Secret sins against God breed secret resentments toward Him. And while these remain in the soul, prayer is impossible. You say, whoa, 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 but, but I can call on God and I'm washed in the blood. I can call on but I'm not talking about you. You don't have salvation. I'm, we're not talking about in that. We're talking down a layer where your relationship, your walk with the Father, when sin, secret sin builds up in your heart, these sins against God, Sin that you want to live life the way you want to live, or you want to do this, or, or you want to cling to this idol instead of God, instead of slaying that idol. You want to, these breed resentments against God. That you might find yourself in the middle of the storm not able to speak. Jonah did. But then what happened? The lot fell on Jonah, right? They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah, and his secret was now out. Because what did the lot reveal? It was Jonah. Jonah's sins were what's causing the gods to be angry, from the mariners' perspectives, right? The gods are angry with us because of Jonah. Jonah's secret's out. Now, he's one, don't you see? I mean, we don't really cast lots, and there's reasons for that today, but like... Don't fail to see this incredible example of God's sovereignty. Jonah's out in the middle of the sea on a ship with people who don't know the true and living God. And God uses the casting of lots to reveal to Jonah, or to expose, the, if you will, the sin, the secret sin of Jonah. You see, the exposure of your sin, just as it was for Jonah, is the beginning of hope. Not even just for you, but for those around you. You see, the exposure of Jonah's sin was evidence of God's love. Yes, it was uncomfortable. Jonah had been outed. Right? Have you ever caught a, a child in the middle like, of doing something wrong, and they're like, they just, they've been exposed, right? They thought it was a secret, and now it's come out. Or maybe yourself. Lord willing, you've had sins in your life that you thought were secrets that have been exposed. This, is what, this was uncomfortable, but it was God loving Jonah. It was God doing what was good for Jonah, even though Jonah wasn't going to like it. You see, the exposure was evidence that God would not let Jonah go. Understand the significance of that. If you're a follower of Jesus, 
understand the significance. Right here, the casting of lots, these lost crew members, and God exposes Jonah's sin and says, in that act saying, I'm not letting you go. Did you hear that? It's God's uncomfortable grace that exposes your sin. And it's evidence that God will not let you go. Right? But it's uncomfortable, right? Like, that's broken, and you're, you're hurt, and your pride is crumbling, and people might be looking down on you and even judging you, and, and you're going, ah, just, I, I messed up, and I'm exposed, and I feel naked, Right? Oh, but that gives way to hope. You see, we, but we run from this all the time. Listen, we don't go to church like we should because we feel uncomfortable that someone's going to talk about our sin. Or if we go to church, we avoid relationships that will expose our sin. Like we stay away from those ones. Maybe we even run from those relationships that will and find solace in other relationships that won't. Because we don't want to be exposed. We want to remain hidden. But there is hope. You see, once sin is exposed, silence is broken. Read with me in verse 8. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, what? I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Notice the little bit of hypocrisy right here in the middle. He's running from God rebelling against God. And here in the middle of this, he calls him Lord. And not just Lord, but the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Again, you see this gap in his theology. But then we see this. Jonah knew what needed to happen for the men to be saved. He says what? Throw me in. Read on. Verse 10. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then he said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Let me ask you a question. You've got to understand Jonah. Jonah was a prophet. Jonah received words from God and gave those words to the people of God. If the words he said to the people of God were not true, then he would be stoned. That's what they, that's, that's, that was how it was done. I ask you this question. How did Jonah know that the sea would calm down upon throwing him in? How did he know? Is this not rocket science? God told him. God told him. What does that indicate? The silence of God is broken. Right? We talked about this, being able to call out to God in the middle, but you got this secret sin that's resentment, and there's this silence that God is not speaking to Jonah. God is sending a storm upon Jonah. Then what happens? This storm has now turned Jonah's heart, and God's speaking to Jonah. God told him, God told him, if you do this, you offer your life, I will spare their lives. 
The silence was broken. When Jonah's sin, listen, was exposed, when it was out in the open, and repentance began. You see the beginning of Jonah's repentance right here. When that happened, God's silence was ended. And Jonah spoke as a prophet again, telling the crew what they must do to be saved. This is what prophets did. And here, God began speaking to Jonah again. But upon what? The exposure of his sin and the journey towards repentance. You see, the exposure of our sin leads, just as it did here in Jonah, to this one particular realization that we need a sacrifice. That's what he says to to the mariners here. Listen, he says to the mariners, if you want to be saved, throw me overboard and the storm will calm down. Your lives will be saved. But you know, just like the crew our natural desire is to refuse sacrifice. Our natural desire is to refuse sacrifice. In verse 13, here's the response of the crew. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Look at the picture here. So God speaks to Jonah. Jonah says to the crew, if you want to be saved, you must sacrifice my life. Throw me into the water. And what do they say? What do they do? What are they, what's the response? Nah. We can row harder. We got this, Right? See, the first response of the crew was to refuse the sacrifice. God had spoken. The way to deliverance is through the sacrifice of Jonah. Don't miss this. One man willing to lay his life down, but the men think they can save themselves. Now let's pause for just a moment. We might think here for just a moment that it's indeed admirable for them to try to spare Jonah's life, right? Oh, they're just, they're trying to spare Jonah's life. But don't miss the facts of the story. God had spoken very clearly. And they respond with a clear rejection to God's grace. You'll be saved by the sacrifice of Jonah No, we reject that. We can row and save ourselves. Again, that's not admirable. There's a deep-seated pride in the human heart, mine and yours both, that says we can make it through the storm. We don't need God. I mean, at most, maybe we like kind of throw out some prayers to God. But ultimately, we just really think we can do it ourselves. You see the gap in their theology, if you will. They now know, they know up here, that the way to salvation is through the death of Jonah. But they think they can save themselves. Again, this is not something to admire. This is something to reject, something to abhor. They were in direct rebellion of God's word. So to us here today, I would say this, every day and every moment that you live for something other than Jesus, you are indeed refusing His sacrifice. Whether this is someone uh, who you're thinking, okay, well, I, I, I like Jesus, I I like this religion thing, but I don't know that I'm a follower of him. Listen, if you think that you can make it to heaven as a good person without the righteousness of Jesus, it may look admirable to you and maybe even your friends that you're a morally good person, but your clinging to your righteousness is rebellion against God's righteousness provided through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. 
I know, listen, I know. That's uncomfortable grace. Just as the sailors tried to save themselves, after they finished calling out to their own way of salvation, what happened? The storm raged on. And if you do consider yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, let me help you see the gap in your theology. The truth is, our attempts to save ourselves, to cry out to our own gods on a daily basis, probably even seem admirable to you and to those around you. You got it all together. I feel good about how well I'm doing. Again, they may look admirable, but if that's what you cling to, then it is a rebellious act, indeed a rejection of God's sacrifice. Let me give you some examples. Like you say, okay, what, what maybe does that look like in my life? Listen, when you can't quickly and boldly run to God in confession that I've sinned and cling to the cross and the forgiveness there, you are at least momentarily refusing his sacrifice. When you're not, let me get another example, when you're not practicing daily repentance and faith, regularly running to the cross, regularly asking God to forgive you. I mean, daily, multiple times a day. There should never be a day that you, that you live without repentance. None of us in this room are that sanctified. Blind, maybe, but we're not that sanctified. If it's not regular, like if it's not the rhythm of your life, just as the rhythm of breathing is to you, then you are in the rhythm of refusing His sacrifice. You see, to believe in the cross is to believe in Christ's bearing the wrath of God and bearing the punishment for your sin. To believe in the resurrection is to believe in Christ's triumph over the grave and your triumph there in Him also over sin and death. To know this, to know these truths, to know them here and to know them here is to depend on Him, to abide in Him, to run to Him even when the other things seem so tempting. And it's to run to Him when you cave and pursue something that looks so tempting. You see, but only once you, whether you consider yourself a follower of Christ or not, only once you come to the end of yourself will you no longer refuse His sacrifice. Only when you come to the desperation of my attempts. So we can blame whoever we want to. We can, we can look around the ship and we can try and find the one who's causing this in my life. But listen, when you and I come to the end and we go, I am desperate, you will no longer refuse to sacrifice. What's it say in the story? But they could not. Like they tried rowing, but they could not. They could not. They realized, I, we're at the end. We have no other choice. Once they realized they could not beat the storm, what happened? They turned to what God had said. And this here is the grace of the storm. I want you to see this. God's zeal for the salvation of these men is on display right here in the midst of the storm. See God once again harnessing the forces of nature to rescue these men. Not ultimately, although physically, but not ultimately from the reality of the storm, but from ultimately from the reality of their wicked hearts that needed redemption. He harnesses the storm. See the grace of God in display with the sailors. In verse 14, it says this, Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood for you. O Lord, you have done, or Lord, O Lord, have done as it has pleased you. Listen, if we're going to understand God's work on the cross, we need to understand our guilt 
in the sacrifice. All right? If we're going to understand God's work on the cross, we need to understand our guilt in the sacrifice. Right? Right? What? To feel loved by God, we need to understand this demonstration and why it's good news for us. Understand our guilt in the sacrifice. Listen, when they realized their gods were useless. Do you hear that? They're crying out to their gods. For us, like those gods look like different things. It looks like family. It looks like possessions. It looks like materials. It looks like acceptance. It looks like control. It looks like power. There's lots of ways in which we cry out to other gods every day. But once they realized their gods were useless, they turned to the real God. But here's the key question I want you to ask at this point in the narrative. Why didn't Jonah just throw himself overboard and save the crew the anxiety described here in verse 14? Oh Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Why doesn't Jonah just go, look, it's me caused the storm. I will vacate the ship right now. Why doesn't Jonah do that? Jonah did not throw himself overboard in order to preach to us that we are the guilty party in God's sacrificial providence. Okay, what's what's that mean? What What do you mean? Listen, the crew was the guilty party. Not Jonah insofar as he represents Christ. We, we know Jonah's rebelling, but the picture, like you see this repentance, and what he's saying is Jonah, if Jonah's thrown overboard, if he is sacrificed, then the crew will be saved. You see, we're the guilty ones. We're the ones guilty of sin in the very act. They were guilty of the very act of throwing Jonah overboard. Like, like, whether or not this, all right, so God, yeah, God's telling them to, to do this, and then they do this, so are they, I, I, that's, we're down like three or four layers. I don't want to be down there right now. I want to stay up here. It's a narrative. Not every, if you understand narratives, not every little detail of the picture is supposed to represent something in the future. But a lot of them are. The point that you need to walk away with at this point in the narrative is that the text intends to communicate to us that Jonah was sacrificed at the hands of evil sinners and that Jonah was freely offering his life. The crew acted on it. I think about the resurrection story and the, the, I'm sorry, the cross, the story of the cross, right? Jesus could have saved himself. He could have just said one word and like the whole cross thing would have never happened. But what's he say in the story? Like, what, what happened? What did the gospels recount for us? That Jesus says, no, I willingly laid down my life. That's why Jonah doesn't just go, all right, guys, you'll be better off without me. Woo, Right? Don't miss this. This is to show us that Jesus Christ did not take his own life. Instead, he was crucified at the hands of evil sinners. Jesus freely offers his life. We, the human race, acted on that sacrifice. We are the guilty ones. This free act is a demonstration of his love. Do you see how this points to Jesus, the cross, and the resurrection even further? Let me, let me help you see this. The storm of God's judgment is stronger than you are. It's stronger than you are, every single one of us. God's storms are stronger than you and I can handle. Oh, but he'll give me the grace to endure it. C- calm down. You and I have no ability to survive the storm by our own efforts. Again, whether the storm is one leading you to believe in Christ for the very first time, to forsake your unrighteousness or your perceived righteousness for the actual righteousness of Jesus, 
or the storm is one continuing to lead you to faith in Christ as one of His children. Whatever the case is, the storm of God's judgment will destroy you unless you are saved by the sacrifice of someone else. What happens at the cross? What the, the scriptures, the pictures. I don't have time to go to these verses, but at the cross, Jesus was cast out by men, right? The idea of he was cast out and he was forsaken by the Father. What happens to Jonah? He is cast out by the crew. You see, at its heart, the gospel is about God's storm and about God's sacrifice. Right here in Jonah. Jesus, Jesus, the scriptures testify about me. Right here in Jonah. You see, at the heart, the gospel is about God's anger and God's grace. Verse 15, so they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Here's my last thought for you today from the text. Stake your life on Jesus Christ and nothing else. So finally, they come to the end of themselves and they throw Jonah in the water. Finding salvation through sacrifice. Again, don't miss this. We crucified, you and I crucified the Son of God. That's our guilt in the sacrifice, yet He chose to lay down His life for us. That is our salvation through the sacrifice. Can you see how the death of Christ is a demonstration of God's love for us? You and I, listen, were casted out like we, we, ca- rather, he, we casted him out, but he willingly gave his life. But prior to this, you and I were the ones in the ship running in rebellion. Oh, but listen to this. You're saying, okay, Matt, listen. I, all right, you're talking about Jonah and the whale. And, and, and you're talking about Jonah in a way that I have never heard, right? Felt bored Jonah was never communicated this way, okay? It's not the way I learned this story. You're crazy. You're full of it, okay? All right. Matthew 12, verse 41. The men of Nineveh. You can go, go read this in context. Don't take my word. Later, you can read it in context. 41. The men of Nineveh, wait, 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 pause for a second. This is Jesus, just for the record, okay? Jesus. These would be in red if you had one of those special Bibles. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment. Let me pause again. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees here, okay? That's the last context thing I'll give you. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation, you Pharisees, And condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. What's he saying? Jesus himself. Now you can go read it because Jesus also talks about, I, I I didn't attach these verses here, but he goes on to talk about how just as Jonah was three days in the belly of the whale, so shall the Son of Man be three days in the belly of the earth. Right? So Jesus is saying, Jesus himself is saying, the story of Jonah is about me. It's about me. It's about my sacrifice. It's about me. See, Jonah preaching God's salvation. I'm here to preach my salvation, which is God's salvation. But now someone greater than Jonah is here preaching this salvation through me. Jonah was pointing to me. It was pointing to me. The whole story is about me. And what, he, what Jesus is saying is that someone much less than me, someone 
much less awesome and glorious and perfect than me, came and went to Nineveh, and they repented. But here I am, God's son, standing before you Pharisees, and you won't repent, and I'm way greater than Jonah. So on the day of God's judgment, their act of repentance will condemn you. Because something greater than Jonah's here. It's Jesus. Listen, Jonah was thrown into the sea on account of his own sins, though. Listen, this is where Jesus is saying something greater. What do you mean by something greater? Jonah was thrown into the sea on account of his own sins. But in this picture of dying for the sins also of the crew. But Jesus was nailed to the cross on account of of not his sins, but yours and mine. Listen, Jesus is greater because he had no sins of his own to die for. That's why, that's why Jonah couldn't ultimately be a sacrifice in an eternally salvific way for these people. It had to point to something greater because if Jonah's dying for his sins, he would have no time left over to die for the sins of the crew. But Jesus, because he could die on the cross for not his sins at all, he had time to die for me and you. You see, Christ went into the eye of the storm and offered himself as the sacrifice, absorbing the judgment of God. He endured, Jesus endured all that hell is on the cross, so that you would never know what hell is like. You see, the storm of his wrath, of eternal judgment, will never be yours to bear. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, it will never be yours to bear. Did you hear that? Like you and I deserve that and yet his son bore it for us. Listen, resting in God's provision for you and for me through the sacrifice of Jesus is the first step in navigating a God-centered life. But it's not the first step and then you move on to other things. It's the first step every day. It's the first step in every walk of repentance. It's the first step in every time you're like, okay, I, I messed up. I was looking to this God or I was believing this lie. This is the first step every time. Just as the prodigal son is in the pit, in with the pigs, I've done something wrong. But my father's house, there's provision. Here too we say, I, every day, I have sinned. Let me cling to God's provision. As long, listen, as long as you feel there is something you can do to save yourself, you will find ways to avoid giving yourself completely to the Lord. As long as you continue doing that, you will find ways to avoid giving yourself to the Lord. As long as you feel that the, another God can satisfy you, you will avoid giving yourselves completely to the Lord. But as you see the wonder of Christ Himself as the one who took the payment for your sins, then you will begin to feel that the Savior is worthy of the full devotion of your life. Look at the response of the crew. Look at the response of the crew. Verse 16. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. You see, we've got this limited view of the grace of God. We think of the grace of God as this tender touch or the grace of relief and release. I would say to you very kindly that your theology of grace is not big enough. We need to embrace, teach, and preach the theology of uncomfortable grace. Often God's grace comes in the form of hardships, right? 
It did for Jonah. Maybe it comes in the form of relational storms. Listen, God uses graces in your life that are uncomfortable all the time. Maybe it's the relationship with your children or finances. Maybe it's the preaching, authority, physical illness, etc. God uses graces in your life that are uncomfortable all the time. And if, you conti- if your theology doesn't have the robustness to understand that as God's kindness to you, to rescue you, to turn your heart to greater faith in Him, then you will struggle every day wondering whether or not God loves you. Every day. Listen, it's meant to bring us to the end of ourselves. Yes, even daily. Don't just think like storms that last months, even though that might happen. But think of a storm that might even be just happening this week. Or for the past 10 hours. Maybe you get up and you're ready to come to church on Sunday morning and all hell breaks loose in your house and you got people mouthing off and and kids not obeying and this and that. And maybe that storm right there, just in those hour, two hours, is meant to drive you to your knees in desperate repentance. Because you're so frustrated because you're worshiping the God of maybe orderliness or the God of submission to your own authority. Who knows? But I do know this, that if you're a child of the King, that storm in those moments, those very moments, is meant to bring you to the end of yourself so that you would surrender to the God who is our only hope. If, listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, going through a hardship, listen to me clearly, And if you're not going through a hardship, you will eventually. But if you're going through a hardship, even if it's a consequence of your sin, it is a sure sign of the zeal of God's redeeming grace. Listen, I I hope you walk away and go, wow. I feel loved, my God. If I can remember that and, and grab a hold of that, like that changes my perspective. That, that changes my heart. Like It changes the way I see God. I hope it does. God is doing, listen, God is doing the one thing in these moments that you cannot do for yourself. Listen, you can run from a relationship Right? You can run from a hard situation. You can run from a location. You can run from the difficult things in life. You can remove yourself from them. You can get on a ship and sail to another place. But hear me. You can't run from you. You will follow you wherever you go. And you can't run from God. You see that you follows you wherever you go. But listen to me, particularly as a follower of Jesus Christ, God will deal with you because He is the only one who can. So your elders can't deal with you ultimately. Your church can't deal with you ultimately. But God can. And listen, God will deal with you because He's the one who loves you. He can and He will by His grace. You see, Jonah preaches the theology of the cross to us, which I believe is the ultimate display of uncomfortable grace. The cross is painful, isn't it? It's painful. It's painful for Christ. Way more painful than it will ever be for us. Enduring the very essence of what hell is for you and me. That's uncomfortable grace. 
passage says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ did what? He died for us. And not only did he die for us, but in glorious grace, God raises him from the dead to be our walking, living, breathing, ruling, reigning Redeemer, our King, our sacrifice, our risen Savior. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace today. I pray if there's anybody, anybody in here that that does not know your saving grace ultimately in your son Jesus. Father, I would, I'm not too naive to believe that even all of our members are saved. That your redeeming grace Father, would captivate their hearts. That they would see the storm as your providential hand turning them from running away from you to running to them, to running to you, Father, to, to turn their hearts in repentance. And Father, for those who are your children, Father, let them see the storms, the very storms that's being hurled at them by your loving, gracious hand. Let them see it as zeal, your zeal for their good. Let us forsake all that we would claim as righteousness of our own. Understanding that the storm of your judgment, none of us can endure. But you provided a sacrifice that doesn't just calm the storm, it absorbs the storm. The storm's done, never to happen for your children ever again. His name is Jesus. Let us cling to Him and only Him. In His name we pray. Amen.